Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for Episode 9 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast, and joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. Today we'll be speaking with John Simon, based in Bristol, England. John is a serial entrepreneur and the founder of Pie Minister, a small group of restaurants and cafes in southern and western United Kingdom focused on serving the savory pie, which everyone in the UK and Commonwealth knows all too well. Recently, John co-founded Good60, an online platform which brings together the best of the best of food retailers and artisan producers, allowing people to either buy local groceries or amazing produce from across the UK and have it delivered to their door. Welcome, John. Hi, Eric. Hi, Ashley. How are you doing? John, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio today. I was in Bristol a few months ago and I ate at a pie minister and I, I love the name. What was the inspiration for the name of pie minister? Uh, well, it's a long story actually, but there's a, um, my co-founder, Tristan Hogg, he was, uh, over in Australia a long time ago and we talked about setting up a pie company long before he, before he went. And as he was sitting on a beach eating a famous Australian pie, it apparently it sort of dawned on him like a sort of, uh, a ray of sunshine and said, pie minister, that's the, that's the name. I'll take that back, tell John and, uh, get started. Excellent. So it was sun-induced. Was there any alcohol in the process as well? Uh, I don't think there was actually, strangely. Normally there would be, but I think on this, <laughs> this occasion he was, he was straight out of the sea at about nine o'clock in the morning. So, um, I, well, I hope not anyway, at <laughs> that time of day. <laughs> and John, what were you doing before you started Prime Minister? Well, my career started back in 1996, I think. Um, I left university and then I, um, I went off to become a furniture and product designer. So I worked for some big high street brands at the time and some small individual designers, which was quite exciting, all in sort of West London, East London. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I went off and started a bar with a good friend of mine from university, which I did for six or seven years and grew it into a, into a chain of, well, a small chain, expanded into one other site and then, uh, then did that for another, another couple of years and then sold up and moved to Bristol with Tristan and set up Prime Minister. Wow. Well, you have a similar background as I do. I was an industrial designer for about 11 years before I started a food company. It's exciting, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah, I think that the two things are very closely linked, actually. I, I never thought they would be, but I think people, people in the design world, whether it's food or fashion or product or industrial design, they all seem to have a, have a passion for food as well. Good people. <laughs> indeed, indeed, without a doubt. So, John, you've been doing Pie Minister now uh, since I think it was 2003. Is that right? The, the year that you started it? Uh, yeah, that's the year it was incorporated. And then uh, we started trading r right towards the end of the year. I think it was a couple of days before Christmas. They opened the doors of the first prime minister in Bristol. And then, um, yeah, they went from there. We kind of, we grew quite quickly. And, and now we're what, 12, 13, no, 14 years in and, and lots of restaurants and lots of wholesale and all sorts of exciting things. How long was it before you opened your, uh, your second outlet? 
That was about a year, but we, when we first started, we thought we'd, um, we thought we'd sort of set up a, a chain of restaurants, but actually realized that it was quite difficult to do because we, we needed quite a big um, space to actually make the pies themselves. So we ended up wholesaling quite quickly and selling into other, other pubs and restaurants and that sort of thing. And just because I suppose we were quite young and quite, quite enjoyed getting out there and having some fun with the business, we took it off to Glastonbury and other music festivals and sort of toured the country in the summer, summer months, selling to all the, the hungry festival goers for thoughts about opening up a second restaurant towards the end of the year. Well, all you need is a success at Glastonbury, and and that's pretty much all she wrote. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it was, it was a good. Well, it was a funny year. I mean, like Glastonbury, as most years, it poured down with rain, and there was a the whole site got flooded. For some reason, we were up on top of a hill, so no, we were the only place in the whole festival where there was any grass. So everyone used to come up to our stall and sat in the grass having their lunch, and yeah, we were we were absolutely smashed that year. So so yeah, it certainly turned a few heads and it put us on the map. <laughs> that worked out well, indeed. Yeah. John, would you be able to share with us a little bit about the ethos of your company? What makes Pie Minister Pie Minister? And uh, can you also share a few of the pies that you sell? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the, the whole sort of premise, I suppose, behind the business is that we were sort of, uh, I suppose, back in the UK, back in sort of 2003 and, and before, pies had a, quite a poor reputation in the UK, actually. They were, they were filled with sort of mystery meats and people were always a little bit wary about what you might end up in your mouth. We, we really went out to sort of start sourcing very very good quality meat high quality free range british produce um, we, we made lots of vegetarian pies which were which you couldn't buy in the uk at the time yeah so it was a, it was a real sort of step forward in terms of quality uh, and price point as well which i suppose that does come at a cost so we did shift the bar quite considerably with with the business uh, and then in terms of the, f- the flavors that we've got oh, we've got all sorts of ones we've got um our heidi pie which is our first vegetarian pie which is goat's cheese sweet potato red onion and roasted garlic we've got our matador pie which is british beefsteak chorizo olives butter beans and sherry there's all sorts of ones there's a range of about 15 of them at the moment so we've even got a vegan one and gluten-free now so (laughs) what's the next flavor uh well we're we're investing quite heavily in vegan actually it seems to be a trend which isn't going away and we've done one and it's been such a success we're looking to do a few more the the younger generation are certainly enjoying the vegan produce and actually doing something that's equally as exciting as a lot of the meat flavors without having to compromise on on taste quite an exciting thing to be doing and i think we've i think we've cracked it with one so moving on from that more more to come i think well the research supports what you're saying uh gen z and millennials are increasingly purchasing meat-free options uh also referred to as plant-based in many cases so uh well done on that yeah no it's an interesting trend and i think it's yeah, I think when it was a, three or four years ago, it was, it was so niche and sort of almost it's a dirty word in the food industry. If you mentioned vegan, it was kind of, you know, chefs would throw knives at you. But now, <laughs> uh, now it's, uh, yeah, I, think, I think people are really sort of switching onto it. Definitely an interesting movement, which for all the right reasons as well, you know, not just about animal welfare for a start, but also, you know, saving the planet with beef production, that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on the alternative meats, you know, the vegetarian alternative meats? Do you use those or do you just use vegetables and, and other uh, non-alternatives? Um, at the moment, we're just using vegetables, but weirdly, they do taste quite meat-like, the way we sort of put them together. I'm a big fan of some of the meat alternative things, like corn, I think it's very good. Uh, we're looking at doing a sort of a chilli one with, with made out of corn mince, huh. which is quite exciting. Yeah, some of the some of the cheeses are a bit peculiar, but we're 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 getting there. We're starting to find some interesting suppliers, and you know, as the trend develops, you know, obviously more more producers are producing more interesting things. So the the uh, pool of things which we can pick from is becoming more uh, more more broad. Very cool. And tell us a little bit about Good Sixty, John. 
Uh, well, Good 60 was set up by myself and, a, and another good friend uh, about, well, that was about two years ago, I suppose. So we've just, we, we spent a bit of time, quite a lot of time doing the research and building the, building a platform, but it's primarily, well, fundamentally, really, it's, it's an online platform that brings together all the best independent uh, food producers and local retailers in, in one place, gives them an online forum, if you like, where they can they hero themselves so it's a it's very much a, um, an individual shop within a shop they have a, a presence on there they they have a, a you know sort of introduction to themselves and the, and the, and the shops and the retailers that, that are actually um, selling on the site yeah you can consumers can go on there they can shop from a variety of shops in their local area and get their local groceries delivered to their door via a electric cargo bike or if it's further afield in the uk then uh, the producers can go on there and have it delivered to their door via an overnight courier yeah, it's really, it's really exciting. It's really, it's really given all these sort of small independents that wouldn't otherwise have a, have a shop, an online way to service a never-growing demand, really. I saw the promotional video for that. It looks like it was crowdfunded. Is that right? Well, it, to start with, it wasn't. It was, it was funded by myself and my, my business partner. Uh, but obviously, with all these things, it's, it takes a bit of time to get momentum behind it and to, for us to expand into, into London and to other places like that, we, we needed to crowdfund, which is very interesting uh, very interesting exercise actually i've learned an awful lot about crowdfunding in the last six months which is always good it's good to keep learning and you exceeded your goals with that can you share your your secret to exceeding your goals is it just because john is a popular guy or was there some other reason that you exceeded? <laughs> um well i like to think it's because john's a popular guy but <laughs> it's probably it's probably not the case you know you need to go to market with a very well prepared pitch you need to make sure it's bulletproof in terms of the investors questioning because so you you know you need to be very 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 well prepared that you know you are going to get some difficult questions and you have to be prepared to answer them honestly and make sure that you're not trying to hide anything having looked at it very closely actually over the last over the last few months especially since we were on the platform and looking at other people's pitches the ones that were successful and including us actually were, were i think were pretty sound businesses and they had a very clear strategy very clear direction and they were able to answer all the questions that people threw at them i think the ones that struggle are the ones that are they aren't quite as clear and transparent in a lot of their pitching as as, as others and and you know, ultimately they get they get caught out with the questions from from the crowdfunding community. These are bright people usually who who want to invest in in growing businesses, so they're not to be taken as fools. So you need to be very very clear about your proposition and what it stands for. And then what's what's going on with uh, Good Sixty now? How many subscribers do you have? What's your your growth rate? All of that good stuff. Um, well, we've been growing about fifteen to twenty percent a month, which is which is very exciting. Uh, we've we're only in Bristol at the moment. We've got sixty retailers on the site, which is growing quite quickly. We've just about to launch into Bath, which is about sort of fifteen miles from from Bristol, another small city, but it's quite exciting. There's lots of really great producers down there and great retailers. Uh, so that's going to be in the next six weeks. And there's a well, we've got about another fifteen retailers signed up to to come onto there. Um, already so in a couple of weeks we'll hopefully get that up to up to 30 and then straight on to into London so yeah it's going to be it's going to be an interesting year now we've got a bit of a bit of funding behind us we can really ramp things up so I think it's going to be quite an interesting business in a year or two. Well you've been doing this for about 15 years being in business uh, in the food service industry and the food industry clearly you've got some experience under your belt but you must have had uh, some particular aha moment what what was that aha moment in business for you? Well, there's a, I suppose there's, there's a number of things, aren't there, throughout, the, throughout your career which sort of stand out. Um, I suppose my aha moment really was um, over the course of your career, I suppose you, you do sort of doubt yourself a little bit and, and almost, almost more so, I think, when, you, when things are going well because, you know, you sort of, I suppose, a naive 
enthusiasm which gets you so far and then it's it's lots of energy and, and excitement but when that sort of initial boost of adrenaline sort of dies down really and things seem to be going quite well there's a I did have a sort of a bit of a wobble really and then you kind of get surrounded by by other I suppose other consultants and and, and the like kind of tend to migrate towards the business um, I suppose what I realized then was actually you know you really do need to, to trust your own gut instinct really and and as these people sort of tended to sort of congregate around me I sort of realized that they were actually learning as much from me really as I, as I was from them and that, it was really that moment you sort of start to think actually you do really need to sort of just trust your own instinct and actually these people are here to advise and you can take it or leave it really rather than feeling like you need to do everything they say because I think I've been caught out like that in the past where you sort of you know, you blindly follow other people yeah I think just just having that real sort of belief in what you've what you're doing and really how far you've come and understanding that that is what gives the essence of the business and that's what really gets people going and what, why you should really get behind your own your own thoughts really how old were you when that aha moment happened i think it was quite early on in prime minister actually because you know we because we did get some really big momentum behind the business when we first started and we had lots of people sort of surrounding us and sort of lawyers and bankers and all sorts of people all kind of wanting a piece of the action and lots of people sort of trying to trying to advise really and we did take some advice and it wasn't great at certain points in our in the in the sort of history of the business yeah and i think after a while you sort of you start to question really what you're doing and why you're doing it and whether you should be following everyone's advice or, or following your own your own heart really Speaking about the early days, John, can you share with us a major challenge or a success in your career? And uh, if it were a challenge, how you overcame it? Um, the biggest challenge is really, really early on in the career, actually, when it's, you know, like anything, it's, it's quite easy to, to have an idea. You know, it's quite easy to sit there in, the, in, a, in a bar with your friends and talk these things through and, and kind of get all fired up. And then you, when you sort of go back into the, the cold light of day and you start planning, it's all, it's all quite exciting. Now, I, I used to do that a lot, really, and, and had lots of ideas. And I, you know, even at university, I was doing very sort of small, small businesses and sort of every holiday I'd set up a little business of some sort and go and do someone's gardening or do, or, you know, set up a little car cleaning business or something like that. Actually, when after, after I left university and I wanted to decide I want to set up properly and do something quite substantial and open a bar was one of them. I realized that I quite quickly that I needed quite a bit of cash to do it. And obviously being a 22 year old or 23 year old, whatever it was, it's uh, it was quite a, quite a tricky thing to actually get any funding, especially from the banks with no real proven, proven track record. So, yeah, raising money was a was a big challenge. So I, I took a slightly unconventional approach and went off and started applying to TV game shows, which <laughs> which um, which actually worked out quite well. I, <laughs> I managed to get onto a national TV show and and that was how I raised the money to get my first business off the ground. It wasn't a huge amount of money; it was only ten thousand pounds at the time, but it was enough to um, an overdraft facility and and a, and a business partner to to get things moving. That is hilarious. What kind of a TV show was it? Uh, it was, <laughs> God, it was, I can't dig it out, whatever you do, it's quite embarrassing. It was, uh, <laughs> we were being chased around the country by, by people with cameras and we had to make a video diary of it at the same time. And we were, I think there's a, there's a show on at the moment, which is quite similar called Hunted. I don't know if it's over in Canada, but it's in the UK, but it's a, it's a kind of, you're almost, yeah, like, like you're an escaped prisoner really. And you've got to, <laughs> got to be, go on the run for two or three weeks and not be, a, be evade capture. So it was, all very, it was all very exciting. I, I did get a bit paranoid. It took me a couple of days to, to come out of character once we'd finished because I spent, spent two weeks under a bridge pretty much. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I really went into, went into deep cover. <laughs> <laughs>
John, you've been in business for uh, well over 15 years now. Do you see any kind of uh, concern in the food and beverage tourism industry? And if you do, uh, what kind of solutions would you have for those concerns for our industry? Well, I suppose it's a, it's a tricky one, really. I, I think, for me, there's, there's a sort of risk of the whole sort of world becoming homogenized, really, and all, everyone's foods becoming too similar. I, think I, I do see the, the food and fashion world in, in quite a similar way. When, when I sort of grew up in, in South London, we were heading off into London to find the latest, you know, sort of dig out the latest sort of unknown designers and clothes shops and things. You know, I, I see the same in fashion now that you can go on the internet and you can buy anything anywhere in the world and get it get it sent to you within a couple of days. I think food's got the risk of being the same. I think because people are traveling all over the globe more so than ever, that ideas are t getting taken back to their home countries and there's kind of reiterations of that sort of appearing on, on the high street. I mean, if you go into London now, there's thousands of different types of food from all over the world. And I'm sure it's, it's the same in the States and Canada as well. It's, it's the risk of sort of losing that. And I think the solution, if I could sort of try and second guess it, would, would actually be to just create as much of an experience as you can with, within those environments you know that's that's really going to be the thing that sets you aside now more than the food itself because the food people recreate the foods everywhere in the world now a follow-up to creating an experience john how do you go about doing that and can you share some examples I, I suppose it sort of goes beyond food it's happening a lot now in the uk that there's well there's two there's two sides to it there's you need to be a bit careful otherwise you end up with sort of great big themed restaurants which in in their own way can be exciting i think it's, it depends how much they turn into crazy things but i think if there's an authenticity i mean if you go down to there's a crab restaurant which i stumbled across about two or three years ago down in devon in, on the south coast which if you go down there and you literally getting the fishermen dragging the crab out of the sea and then they're kind of literally taking it up into the restaurant and cooking it in front of you that's an experience you can't really create recreate mm -hmm. in a you know everywhere in the world so you can go you can eat crab in lots of places in the world but you, you're very unlikely to see the fisherman pull it out of his net and walk it up to the restaurant where it gets cooked in front of you so not every restaurant's going to have the ability to do that but they can create their own theater i suppose which is unique to them how long it stays unique to them until somebody else copies it is another question but if you can do that you're doing you're doing something different always what people are trying to hunt out i completely agree with you i was recently in maui at a restaurant called Mama's Fish House. And on the menu, they would have, you know, different catch of the day, but they included the name of the fisherman who caught the fish that morning and brought it in, which was really neat to, to feel like you had a connection to the people sourcing your food. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And it's, you know, it's, it's a big thing in the UK at the moment, if, especially if you go to, you know, a Michelin star restaurant in country somewhere, is that they'll, they'll be sure to have things that are literally pulled off the fields around the unit if they don't grow them themselves there's obviously gardens out the back where they'll be growing their own produce as well that's the thing isn't it if, if it's unique and you can name the fisherman and the farmer and the, the guy who chopped it up for you then all the better mm -hmm. john i think you've hit the nail on the head when you say that it's really the experience that makes the difference uh, we say in food tourism that you should be serving a memory and not a meal and i think all too often food service professionals are, are happy just to put some food in front of you and call it good. But, you know, we can be fed anywhere. And it's the experience that starts from the first impression as you're walking up to the establishment, the greeting, the seating at the table, what's on the menu, whether menu messaging is used and so on, that gives you the impression of the kind of place you want to go back to. Is it the kind of place that you want to tell your friends and family about? 
Absolutely. You know, it's, we're catching up here in the UK in terms of customer service and things, but the staff and the guys that you've got working in the restaurants and the culture that you create within there is, is so vitally important to really what to, to the success of the venue. And I think that is the got to be the starting point behind any restaurant business really is just making sure you've got the right crew. The food is almost secondary. If you're talking about a burger restaurant and, and that sort of thing, there's very little that can tell them apart really. If you get a good quality burger in London or New York, they're going to be they're not going to be a million miles apart, but the venue and the staff might be miles apart, which really makes the experience count. You've had a long career in food now, John, but if you could go back and give yourself a single piece of advice to a younger version of you, what would you tell yourself? I'd probably cook more. <laughs> I did cook a lot as a, a lot as a child, but not, not, not as much as I probably should have done. My parents were, were quite good cooks. I think I definitely would have done a, a bit more of that. I would definitely have pursued sport more i did i did a lot of sport as a kid and then frustratingly i sort of broke my leg when i was about 6 15 16 showing off to some girls in the park <laughs> i unfortunately i used to play quite a lot of soccer and never took it up again after that because i missed the season and i thought i you know i didn't want to play if i wasn't going to be in the first team and all the rest of it which i've regretted ever since actually so i think yeah cook more and continue team sports rather than now having to sort of go and do things like play squash which is all very fun but it's uh, it's, it's not quite the same as a game of football <laughs> John, what, what legacy do you hope to leave behind when you're ready to, to call it quits and sell or, or give the business to a, a family member, whatever, whatever you choose to do? What kind of legacy do you want to be known for? I mean, I'd be, I'd be thrilled to bits if Prime Minister goes on to become a, an international brand and in the process manages to retain the, the integrity of really all the things that made it successful in the first place, you know, really be, be honest about the, the provenance, honest about the, the food which we make there. I think it does have potential to do that. There's definitely a uniqueness to Pie Minister that still rings true and you can't see it anywhere else in the world really other than what we do. Uh, with Good 60 as well, I think there's the, all the reasons for it existing are the right ones it's giving some some power back to these independent retailers so we don't end up with a you know with a high street that looks the same anywhere you go in the world you've got independent retailers and producers doing really amazing things it's just giving them the ability to compete online which is where most of the well most of people's shopping is going yeah if those two things can flourish with me or without me if i if i move on to do something different then that would be an amazing legacy that's got sort of ethical and green credentials as well as some uh, some proper integrity into the brands sure well let's hope that it it gets to that point that would be a fantastic story to tell about bristol as well where pie minister was born well i hope so we can be like ben and jerry's hope they can come to the come to the museum <laughs> in bristol one day <laughs> john do you have a quote you can share with us something that uh, has applied in your life or something that you you really believe in if you were to ask somebody else, I think, you know, because I've, you know, I've managed quite a few people. And I, I, don't, I don't ask a lot of people, but I do ask that they really do the best they can, really. So if, if you apply that to yourself as well, and it works in two ways. One, one it's, it does inspire you to do the best you can. If things don't work out and you've given it your best shot, then actually you can't really worry too much. You know, it's only work at the end of the day or it's only a, an activity. So if you give it your best crack, then if you fail, it's not too bad. And if you go ahead and conquer the world, then you know you did it through hard work. And how do you inspire those around you? I'm sure you manage quite a ton of people and how do you get them to, to give off their best? Well, I, I certainly make sure that the business is a lot of fun. People spend an awful lot of time at work and, and surrounded by you know, their colleagues and things. The environment needs to be a nice place to work. The, we need to be fair and clear and transparent. We set quite hard targets, but we make it very clear about what people need to do. So they know what their role is within the business. They have a clear 
chance of progression. We celebrate the good times as well. It's, it's very easy to be in business and kind of constantly keep your head down and, and work, work, work. But if something happens and it's, and it's a success, then we make sure that we, we share that with everybody and everybody sees the upside and we all go out and have a bit of a party. So <laughs> have fun and work hard. I think that's the, that's the adage. And try and lead by example as well. You know, just make sure that, you know, you feel the pain when they feel the pain. You're all, you're all prepared to get your hands dirty. You know, you'll be the first one to help unload a van if need be, as well as, um, as, well as give them direction and, and, and be, be sort of clear and fair at the same time. Well, when it comes to leading by example, sometimes things don't always go as planned. So clearly you must have experienced something that that sets you off. What would be your number one pet peeve in business? I think, again, it comes down to culture, really. I think we don't start sort of believing our own nonsense, actually, and just not turning into sort of, you know, lots of corporate jargon and lots of lots of unnecessary meetings and lots of time wasting and red tape and bureaucracy. So I think keeping clear talking to people like they're human and not like you're quoting out of a, a sort of business manual i think it's important understanding the human element of business i think is, is hugely important i'm also a little skeptical of um award ceremonies for example there's a lot of lot of that in in our business lots of food awards and they're not usually food awards they're usually dressed up as, as food awards by law firms or accountancy firms to by way of sort of trying to pitch business to you which i find a little bit irksome so that's it really, yeah, jargon and, and sort of, you know, people pretending to conventional business approaches, I suppose. Well, you, you talked about the human element, and I think that that's really more important than ever, uh, especially in the era of the internet, where it's very easy to hide behind the, the veil of email. You know, you're posting something on social media, but you don't realize that there's 300 faces that are going to be looking at what you're saying. It's, you really can distance yourself from what you say now. And and I think the art of speaking to a human is going the, the way of the dinosaur in some respects, which is a shame. No, I, I agree. I say it all the time to, to the people in, that I work with is that if you need to get something done and if you need an unusual approach these days, pick up the phone and, and speak to somebody and you'd be surprised suddenly when people are talking, then they become much more, much more helpful. And actually you, get, you can cut out an awful lot of time just by having a conversation in the traditional sense. You're right. It's like that scene out of Wally, isn't it? The, the, the animation when... Um, they suddenly fall off their chairs and away from their screens and they start talking to each other. It feels mm-hmm. like that. We like to ask our guests about some of the books they're reading and books that they love. Do you have a current favorite book, John? I've been recently reading uh, Tools of the Titans by Tim Ferriss. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with him. He, he also does a very interesting podcast. I think he's got it. Well, the, books, the books are very interesting. Read lots of, lots of interesting insight from uh, some high performers in business and sport, which is good to read. When I was a kid, I was always very um, inspired by a book called What Do People Do All Day, which I bought for my children as well, actually, not so long ago, which was a lovely illustration, illustrated book of lots of people scurrying around and, you know, in all different parts of walks of life, gives you an insight into the rest of the world. Sounds neat. And would you be able to share a favorite food travel memory? There's a lot, actually. and Most of them aren't traveling that far for me, though, really. A lot of them are, are sort of based around Devon and Cornwall, where I where I've used to go on holiday quite a bit when I was sort of out of university and couldn't afford a, a plane fare. I suppose the one that really sticks out for me is, well, two, actually. There's the one I just told you about, which is the, the Crab Shack down in Dartmouth, which was an incredible place if, if you ever stumble across it. You'll have to find it, though, because it's, uh, it's not in any guidebooks. <laughs> uh, I remember cooking some, some scallops on a camping stove once overlooking uh, Croyd Bay, which was a beautiful, beautiful part of uh, the Devon coast uh, with my girlfriend at the time. First time I realized that she was probably the one I wanted to marry, which, was quite, which was quite a good call, actually, considering she's my business partner's sister. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a family affair. <laughs> 
Well, that's a, a beautiful part of England for sure, the, the southwest corner there. Uh, lots of good food stories. But I bet you, you're a good British person who loves to go home to your Sunday roast, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I don't think I, I don't I don't <laughs> think there's many people in the UK that, that wouldn't agree. You know, when the when the weather turns and the, you can go home and light the fire and get it and get a chicken in the oven. Yeah, it makes it blustery British winters a little bit more bearable. It's kind of like having an American Thanksgiving meal, but on a weekly basis. That that's a lot of food and a lot of work, John. <laughs> It's actually not that difficult. I think there's a, it's definitely a stripped back version. It's not like a kind of Christmas turkey or whatever. So it's a, well, we had one this weekend actually with, with some friends of mine. It was, it was very pleasant. What does it consist of, John? An English, well, usually it's um, either a chicken or a piece of beef or a leg of lamb or something. Then it's just some roast potatoes and some veg of some sort, a bit of gravy and a, and a nice bottle of wine. And that's pretty much it. Pretty easy stuff. Chuck it in the oven and, and go and sit in front of the fire for a couple of hours while it cooks. Oh, sounds hearty and delicious. No parsnips? Oh, parsnips, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll go into the, oh yeah, the root vegetables, yeah, they're all important. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, I was just looking up the, the Tool of Titans book by Tim Ferriss. I've read some of his other book and it looks interesting. There's got to be a couple nuggets from that book that have made an impression upon you. Uh, not really. There's so many, uh, you know, we've, as I said, you kind of just flip through the, the book's sort of designed like that, really, that it's, you know, I think it's a double page spread on most people. And for me, actually, more, more than individuals, there's definitely a, a, a common theme, I think, throughout, throughout the book, which is these guys all have a, all have a regime and a, and a routine of some sort, which looks after their sort of mind, body and, and soul. So it's, it's not all work. It's a bit of a bit of headspace or meditation or some sort of way to, to download and sort the mind out. And then, uh, and also, a bit of exercise all seems to to flow through which i think you know i think we all we all tried to put into our lives but the titans seem to do it more than more than most from what i can gather now john i know that bristol is a it's an independently oriented community it's also community oriented much more than other cities of its size or even larger what advice would you give a young entrepreneur who had a great idea, but was maybe having a, a bit of a hard time, you know, getting the right connections or finding the right money or just getting things off the ground. And he happened to be in your restaurant one day and you were there and you started, uh, struck up a conversation. What advice would you give someone of that age group who you see has great potential, but doesn't seem to be getting all their ducks in a row? The first thing is just, just pick up the phone, you know, it, just start calling people, start asking people as many questions as you can be curious don't be don't be frightened to 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 ask people i think most people will be incredibly surprised actually how forthcoming most entrepreneurs are and most especially people in the food food industry i think they're you know because you can't copyright food in the same way that you might do with a with an iphone or something similar like that that actually people aren't that protective about things in the food industry they're, they're very keen to share and keen to collaborate Mm. So I would say get in touch with people and they'd be very pleasantly surprised that and get their heads around Excel and, and a spreadsheet because you do need to know your numbers. Otherwise, uh, uh, thin margins business, isn't it? The rest of the times the food industry. So you need to understand your money. Definitely. And to make sure that when you lay out your business model, that it's, it's making money and, and not just a hobby, but you're actually doing an actual business venture. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think that's, again, that's where I think you get some incredible sort of street food vendors and this sort of thing. And they need to be careful because I think one thing that, you know, you sort of see these people come and go and you sort of, oh God, what happened to that, that amazing place? And I think it's because they end up working incredibly long hours. They work very, very hard. And after the sort of 
the initial glow disappears, they're left working in a food stall in, you know, in a, on a cold January morning and they, they lose a love for it. So unless you have a, enough of an income to, to expand slowly or evolve, then it, then it, becomes, it does become quite, quite a chore rather than, and you start to lose the love, I think, quite quickly. So, you know, I think that's an issue that I see um, in a lot of countries, really. People have a great idea, they get started, but then they either lose their passion or maybe they don't have the um, sufficient business expertise to, to make a good go of it. And you'll see them shut down. That We've seen that with food carts here in Portland, uh, small food manufacturers that have a really good product, but then they just kind of lose their momentum. And, and you wonder, you know, what, well, what happened to that uh, particular, you know, chocolate product or whatever? And, you know, it's, it's a shame because I think that a lot of these, you know, probably some of the, the very products that you are featuring on Good360, those people are walking a very fine line. And you either make a good go of it or, or you don't. I don't know. I don't think there's a, a, an easy solution or a, an easy prescription to give. I think that what you've shared today is, is part of it, but I don't know. It's, it's a hard one to, to answer. I think it's, it's about cash, actually. I know it sounds, it sounds harsh, but you've either got the cash to, to grow the business, which is exciting and that, that keeps the energy levels up. Not everybody wants to grow. So if, you haven't got, if you're not going to grow, then you need to innovate and evolve and do, find interest that way. If your margins are very tight and, you've, and you haven't got time or the energy to go home after a long day selling your produce to go home and develop new things, then I think it just gets boring, actually, for the people that are involved. And, and, yeah. and people just end up losing the love for it. And then the quality tends to drop because their enthusiasm drops. And then they just leave and do something different, which is a shame, really. And if you do have cash, you have to watch out for those vultures who are hovering who want to consult and advise you. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. They're not all bad. They do get that. I'm sorry, I hope I haven't painted a horrible picture of, of consultants and advisors, but you know, I think that yes, they do tend to they do tend to hover around <laughs> wanting their payday. <laughs> well, John, thank you very much for taking the time to share your business expertise and knowledge uh, with our listeners today. Uh, you've created a success with Prime Minister in the UK, and your Good 60 platform looks like it's well on its way to being another great success. So thank you for taking the time today, John. We appreciate it, as do others in our industry as well. Best of luck to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel, produced by the World Food Travel Association. Join us next time where we learn from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. We'll meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. Thank you for joining us today, and until next time, eat well and travel better.